0: How I Got Here. The Inside Stories of Startups and Innovation in Travel and Transportation with your hosts, FocusWire's Kevin May and Mozio's David Liplak. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today and welcome to How I Got Here, Moseo & FocusWire's podcast about innovators in travel and transportation. Today we have Adam Goldstein with us. Uh, Adam co-founded Hitmonk, was recently a visiting partner at Y Combinator and is now writing a blog to help entrepreneurs deal with anxiety. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Yeah, you bet, thanks for having me. So we like to start uh, every interview with the same question, which is just to simply ask you how you got here.
1: Yeah, well, you know, I was booking a lot of travel in college uh, for the debate team. And that gave me the motivation and the idea to start an online travel site, despite having no experience in the travel industry at all. And in some ways, that was a great decision. You know, I learned a lot, ultimately built Hipmunk up to a, a good size. We sold the business in 2016. We made a big <laughs> impact on the travel industry. We thought a lot about the way that, that the experience is for travelers. Um, And in a lot of ways, it was a terrible idea. You know, we didn't know anything about the online travel world. We didn't know what we were getting ourselves into dealing with airlines and Google and, you know, travel agencies and everything else. And uh, at the time, that was quite a difficult, stressful experience. Um, But I've learned actually a lot from it. And nowadays, as I invest in other startups and, you know, serve on some boards and help founders deal with stuff, I've realized that. Going through the, the craziness that is the online travel industry was actually an awesome lesson, almost like a virtual MBA in dealing with unexpected challenges. And so these days, I've, I find myself helping entrepreneurs dealing with crises a lot, like we did at Hitmonk. Um And I started a blog to help kind of navigate the anxieties that I, I feel like are pretty much universal to entrepreneurs. Um, Not just in the travel industry and not even just in the technology industry, but generally in in any instance where someone's starting a new business, dealing with all of the uncertainty that comes with that. So on uh, com, that's my my website. I've got this blog going, trying to help people think about anxiety in a new way and be more effective as entrepreneurs. Okay. um
2: Okay. Thanks for coming on the show, Adam. Um, take us back then. How did, you, how did you meet Steve? How did that kind of uh, combination come together?
1: Yeah, so I met Steve uh, at a conference when I was in high school. So I wrote a programming book in high school. And Steve had just graduated from college and was starting a website that no one had heard of called Reddit. And Reddit was in the first batch of Y Combinator. And they invited all eight of the companies that were in that first batch of Y Combinator to this conference. And I was there, too, having written this book. And so I, I met him there, and we got to know each other, and we became friends. And I, I lived with him in San Francisco when I was working on a startup that ended up failing during college. And then after, or as I was nearing graduation, I hit up Steve and I said, hey, you know, I know that you've sold Reddit. You might be looking for something new to do. What do you think of this new travel idea? And he said, well, I'm not really excited about it a travel company that seems like a bad idea <laughs> um but if you want to do this with me sure we'll give it a try for three months and if at the end of Y Combinator it hasn't worked then Steve would get to pick the next idea which would not be a travel company right but that was how we got it going
2: <laughs> just just take, just going back to something that you said there Adam you said I was working on another startup while I was at college or, or I was bailing on that and you were doing yeah, another so it while you were at college, right?
1: Yeah, before Hitmonk, I, I was the co-founder of a website called Book BookTour, right. uh, which was a website to help authors figure out where to go on book tour and to help readers find when their favorite authors were going to be in town.
2: Right. And, you and were uh, doing the company that while ended you were, up not working out. But you were doing that while you were studying still?
1: That's right. Yeah, I was working part-time on that during the year and then full-time over the summers.
2: Okay. Right, so you had this—you had this agreement with Steve that you would give it x amount of time, and if it didn't work, you'd move on to something else.
1: That was not a travel company. That's right. That
2: was the deal. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, uh, just uh, last one for me for a second. Then, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, he launched and he sold Reddit, which was yeah. Yeah. You know, at that point, Reddit was one of the kind of the, the hot sites of the moment, wasn't it? I mean, what, mm-hmm. what was what was what was your kind of thought process? Was it just trying to persuade him to give it a go with you because he, he was already kind of like a, a self-made on successful entrepreneur. Yeah.
1: I mean, I pitched him on the idea and I had no hope whatsoever that he was going to say yes. I mean, he'd sold a company that, you know, he was five years older than me. This company had been a success. You know, I started one company that was a failure. i not even graduated from college yet. It seemed so far-fetched that uh, that he'd say yes to it. And so, you know, I don't know if he was just bored. I caught him at the right time. But somehow I managed to convince him to give it a go with me. And, you know, ultimately, he worked with me on Hipmunk for about five years before he went back to Reddit. And he helped us get everything off the ground. I mean, he and I wrote the first version of Hipmunk together. Um, and... We're still in touch. I mean, it's 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 great to have a co-founder that you can trust and work well with. Um, but yeah, I think both of us were surprised how easy it was in the early days, and then how hard it got really quickly. Um, that was not how we envisioned it going. So right. you you
0: uh, said something about how you uh, it was both a good idea and an awful idea early. Um, And it reminded me kind of how a lot of people talk about how uh, you kind of need a level of blissful ignorance in order to start something. Uh, And often that blissful ignorance can be an advantage in a uh, industry where everyone uh, feels like everything should be done a certain way. And I see this myself. I passed on some startups investing and the travel industry thinking, oh, that would never work. Uh, And uh, Mm -hmm. it was my industry experience that clouded it. So where do you think that line is and where do you think you maybe didn't succeed in and uh, being maybe a little too ignorant or not ignorant enough? I don't know. Where do you, where do you think of your yeah. – so you said it like it didn't work for some – so apparently you think that you were a little too ignorant in some ways, right?
1: Are you asking Monk like not working or the first startup not working? Oh, no. Sorry. Yeah. Hitmonk. Monk. Hit monk. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Well, so the way that I think about this is you know, one of the things that entrepreneurs are great at is imagining future possibilities that don't exist. Right. They're, they're, they can conceive of something in their head that doesn't yet exist and they can work to bring that into reality. Most of the time, those ideas are bad for one reason or another. Right. Or, or their execution is bad for one reason or another or both,
0: which is why most
1: startups fail. You know, and that's, those are the statistics. Um, with Hitmonth, you know, I was very stubborn in thinking that having a better user experience would be enough for us to build a great business and that we'd be able to keep improving on our user experience over and over again faster than our competitors keep up. And that if as long as we did that, we'd succeed. And that was faulty thinking in a number of dimensions. One, we didn't pay nearly enough attention to ways of reaching new users in the early days. You know, We, we, we worked a lot to get publicity around the site. We're, you know, putting out press releases and helping reporters with stories that they were working on. And that worked for a while. But we didn't crack SEO for years. And even once we did figure out how to rank for search, you know, search terms, Google started taking more and more traffic for themselves. You know, in the early days, we got paid by airlines. In the later days, you know, after all the airline mergers took place, Pretty much all the meta search sites stopped getting paid by airlines or by most airlines. So a lot of the assumptions that we made turned out to be faulty pretty quickly. And that's why ultimately Hitmon didn't go public, but we, you know, sold, which is sort of like a middle of the road outcome. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs would be thrilled to sell their companies, but a lot of very successful entrepreneurs would consider that a sign of failure. So, you know, we were, somewhere in between.
2: Yeah. I remember I've <laughs> rather handily in 2013, you wrote a piece for us when I was in teen years where you're outlining all these problems that you had and things that you faced in those fairly, uh, so this would have been two and a half years in. And it's yeah. a great, it's a great record of almost how you were thinking at the time, which is great. So we can kind of dive into that. A little bit one of the yeah, first things you said sure. the first you, you say the first thing that surprised me was how incestuous the relationships amongst among intermediaries are yeah how long did it real? how long did it take you for you to realize that and you, you know you wanted to change how people searched did you want to also mm-hmm. want to change how the relationships were between intermediaries because you were so surprised how
1: incestuous it was well, to me, the fact that there, there were all these relationships wasn't in and of itself a problem, unless it interfered with our ability to deliver a great experience to our users. And sometimes it did. You know, we we found that airlines would have all sorts of ways that they wanted us to show their information, ways they wanted to, you know, pay us or not pay us, for that matter, um, that, you know, were based on the ways that they worked with other companies. A lot of people moved between Jobs, you know. I remember we worked with someone in an airline who then worked at a travel agency, you know. And there was someone else who went from an OTA to an airline, and it was just like everyone moving around. And they all knew each other, and we were still in 2013, kind of outsiders. Um, but you know, at that point in 2013, I think we were still maybe we were only just starting to see how the structure of the industry was changing in a way that made life especially hard for startups. You know, like that was just around the time when Google's travel experiences were starting to get more traffic. Yeah. You know, that was right around when like I think two of the airlines submerged, you know, but not like all of them. Um so we weren't necessarily feeling like, oh man, the walls are closing in, you know, at that point. That came a couple of years later.
2: Okay, we can we can we can come to that later. And one of the one of the other things that you said um was you know just integrating with the technology that was elsewhere so you'd obviously built your own platform and you had your own ux but then you had to go and connect to everybody and i know initially right. you were you were an affiliate of orbits i think was it originally
1: yeah orbits was orbits was our first and only partner when we launched
2: yeah that's right and then did you do a deal with ita is that right you were using qpx mm-hmm. or something?
1: yep we did a deal with ita that's right we did we, then we did deals with pretty much all the major airlines, and with a bunch of the big hotel brands, and then the OTAs. So we, we sort of built, built from scratch all those connections. And, you know, the, the technical side of those could be annoying, but that was a manageable kind of annoying. The business side was where things got really rough, you know, with people wanting exclusivity, you know, with people wanting to not pay, with people wanting to do deals on behalf of, other airlines that they were partners with, you know, all sorts of different sort of twists that we didn't expect. (laughs) So something
0: that's interesting is I I feel like you just said that you didn't maybe fully grasp the level of, like you said, incestuous is one example of it, the level Mm -hmm. of uh, bureaucracy in the industry. And I remember Aaron from Silver Rail mentioning there are two types of startups in his mind, uh, disrupting startups and fixed startups. And uh, he was Mm -hmm. definitely building a fixed startup. And I, yeah. I don't know if you would. Uh, I don't know if you would agree with this characterization. It almost sounds like you guys needed to be building a fixed startup, but you had a little bit more of a disrupting mindset to start and had to shift it over time. Do you think that's an accurate uh, description?
1: Um, I think it's easy to make a lot of those sorts of like assessments in retrospect. But back in 2010, I think a disruptive startup wasn't a crazy idea. What, what, we, what we missed was the, the rapidness with which things were changing to a world in which disruptive consumer startups, at least in the flight side, didn't really have much oxygen to breathe, you know. Like, I'll put it to you this way. You know, when we first started, we would call up airlines and we'd say, hey, we're a new meta search site. And for the most part, they'd be like, cool, more competition for kayak count us in, you know, (laughs) by the time, by the time we were five years in, when we'd call up airlines or the same airlines that we worked with, instead of them welcoming us as an alternative to kayak, they mostly saw us as competition for their own direct channel. Right. And so we didn't quite pick up on that shift as early as we should have. Um, We thought that our audience and our, scale and our growth and our, all those things would sort of keep us in the good graces of the airlines. But ultimately there was nothing that was going to stand between them and increasing their profit margins. Right. And as they merged, you know, and as, as they grew their market share through mergers, they started to see all intermediaries as companies that were hindering their profit margins. And once that was the case, you know, the writing was on the wall.
2: So what would you have said, Adam, was in those first, let's let let's put it into, I guess, phase one and phase two, those first three or four years. What would you say was, I mean, you talked about the incestuous part of the industry mm-hmm. and, you know, connecting into these legacy systems were hard. Yeah. What was the the most challenging thing that you had to face. Was it just that the, the, you, you referenced earlier that things were happening so fast. You had, I think it was United and continental emerging. And then you said, you know, yep. you were seeing, you were, you were kind of perceived as a different kind of threat to them rather than a partner. Was there, was it those, yeah, was it I one of those I, two or
1: was there something else that was even more kind of challenging? It was a bigger one. I think it was about, about a, a year and a half or two years in where it really hit us that, if we didn't change what we were doing, we were going to stop growing pretty soon because our word of mouth and our sort of press had started to plateau. Like there's only so many times that someone will write an article about, Hey, there's this new site, you know, after two years, it's not a new site anymore. Right. There's only so much press we were going to get from launching a new mobile app. Like, well, once the app's been out for a couple of months, People aren't going to be writing about how there's this new mobile app. And so we saw that and I think hoped and assumed that making our product even better would allow us to blow past that. And that just wasn't true, Mm. right? It was not enough for us to have a product that kept improving in order to keep getting new users. We needed to figure out a new way to reach people. And we needed to figure out a new way to reach people that we could afford. That was really important, you know, because we even though we'd raised a bunch of money, you know, by 2014, I think we'd raised 30 million dollars or something like that. Yeah. Um, you know, that's a lot of money, but it's not enough money to do a national TV campaign. Right. It's not enough money to buy your way to the top of the Google search results for, you know, most of the major searches people are doing. So we were going to need to figure out some techniques fast for reaching new users in a way that didn't break the bank. And we stressed out a lot about that and had a bunch of false starts. Um, And even the ones that worked ended up being sort of false starts of their own. So that was ultimately why you know, we, we didn't manage to get to, let's say, the scale of kayak, was we just didn't crack that early enough.
0: Well, what, what, what were the, some of those false starts, if you want me asking? And uh, both the real ones yeah, the no. Dilute the ones that deluded you into thinking they weren't at first.
1: Sure. So, I mean, one of the false starts was SEO. Um, we invested a lot of time into building really great content around travel. You know, not just, hey, you could fly from San Francisco to New York, but, you know, how close are the airports in New York to where you're going? And, You know, what are some good things to do? What are are good prices on this route? All sorts of different stuff. There was actually really valuable stuff. I found the pages useful. But it wasn't enough because as Google uh, started directing more and more of the traffic to their own, you know, search experience, being number three in the search results no longer got you a meaningful chunk of traffic. In fact, I think these days, even being number one in the search results doesn't even drive you that much traffic because Google's giving so much real estate themselves. Yeah. So that was one false start. Another one was working with partners. So we invested a tremendous amount of our company's energy into trying to become a, a provider of travel search results to other consumer properties. So the big one was Yahoo Travel right? Yeah. For, for a while, when you went to Yahoo Travel and you searched, it would actually send you to Hipmunk, And it was co-branded Yahoo Travel slash Hipmunk, And that was awesome for us. We got in front of tons of new users. And, you know, we made a bunch of money doing it. And then Yahoo publicly announced a change of strategy where they were shrinking dramatically the number of verticals that they were in. You know, instead of, I don't know, 20 verticals or something. They were going down to four or five. It's like news, sports, finance, and maybe one other one. And travel just went out the window. And so we were in the middle of fundraising. I remember this very well. We were in the middle of fundraising and we found out that our partnership was going to be shut off that day. Like we had three hours notice before it happened. And it was just, it felt like it was going to be the end of the world. But that was another false start. You know, assuming that we could rely on partners who didn't care as much about us as we cared about them that was just not a good bet
2: and it's interesting i mean you did extraordinarily well with the press didn't you in those first couple of years i mean you we referenced did. it and it was almost because i, I guess because you were a, a west coast san francisco based mm-hmm. company it was almost like they were cheering you on to kind of upset the sure. status quo of the kayaks and um um, yeah. I suppose it would have been who were some of the others, but Mobisimo back in the time at the turn yeah, of that maybe, decade. Maybe. Then, but yeah. it was all there was a lot of goodwill towards Hipmunk, and, and and I I always thought that was quite an interesting thing that they were you know this is our kind of local startup that's going to upset the status yeah. quo, um. But it's interesting you say that you can only ride that for so long.
1: Yeah, I mean we we continued to ride it for a while, but it just had diminishing returns, yeah. right? We got our first, you know, 100,000 users from press within our first few months, which is insane. I mean, very few startups are able to get 100,000 users for free. But, you know, going from zero to 100,000 is amazing. Going from 100,000 to 200,000 is still pretty good. Going from 500,000 to 600,000, that's only 20% growth. And when that takes place over the course of six months, it's no longer... Silicon valley style growth. That's just kind of, you know Normal growth. so we needed to figure something out. I wish I wish in retrospect that we'd seen the Trend sooner. I think we held on to hope for a little too long that we'd be able to keep that producing
2: and it's it I was What was so interesting and fascinating about what you did was the The agony index right that was that was the Mm -hmm. launch That was the the whole raison d'etre about the whole thing was that we give you a different way to search for flights. And it was completely different. And I've always wanted to know, and you've kind of talked about this a little bit before in the past, Adam, and it's... When it was around, did you think not think there was just enough people wanted to search in a different way, which was perhaps why you didn't get that sudden whoosh? Yeah, you Mm. got a whoosh from the people that were really into searching in a different kind of way on the Agony Index, but other people just are just set in their ways and quite like that from to date, blah, blah, blah.
1: Yeah, so I think, you know, our theory going in was that we wanted to search based on a combination of factors, not just price, but not ignoring price. You know, price was one of the things that mattered along with the duration and the number of stops and so on and so forth. We assumed that we would find out pretty quickly whether we were the only ones who wanted that or whether there were lots and lots of people who wanted that. Right. And unfortunately, and unfortunately, the answer was somewhere in between. There were some people who wanted that, right? There were some people who planned their own travel, who traveled frequently, who cared partly about price and partly about other stuff. But there were also extremes on both ends you know, on the high end, there were people who were essentially price insensitive, you know, corporate travelers who are traveling, you know, they're probably not even booking their own travel. They're flying business class. Their company's got a negotiated rate. And, you know, their assistant books that travel. So they're, they were never going to be hit users. And on the low end, you know, you got people who travel maybe once or twice a year uh, for leisure, usually with their family. And they know where they're going, and they know when they're going, and flying's expensive. And they're very price sensitive. And when you take those two extremes of the market, you've got most travelers, The slice that we occupied was a minority of travelers. Now, if we managed to reach all of them in that segment, we still could have been a very, very big company. But no startup ever reaches everyone. I mean, even Kayak. It's been like, I don't know, almost 20 years since Kayak launched. They're not even used by most travelers. So the idea that we'd ever be able to reach all of the people in that segment was a fantasy. We hoped that it would be a bigger segment than it turned out to be, and we were wrong. And once we realized we were wrong, we tried going in both directions. We tried building a tool for business travelers, which we weren't able to sell um, because, yeah, we couldn't make the, the sales economics work. We tried it again after we still had to concur, you know, building a business traveler-focused uh, experience, which actually worked well. Um, and then, you know, in between, we tried going down market, trying to, to reach infrequent travelers. In fact, for a while, we had a different experience if you came into Hipmonk from an advertisement, you would see a different version that was less power usery. Yeah. Um, and if you came in directly, you'd see the version that people were familiar with. But that didn't really work either. You know, having a multiple versions of the experience never felt like an especially elegant solution. So yeah, that was that was the trap that we got stuck in.
0: Yeah. Okay. What's interesting, you so you just mentioned Concur, and I know you as eventually sold to Concur. And mm-hmm. um, I have a lot of questions about that. I'd love if you can go into a little bit about sure. uh, how that sale came about. Um, but I'm also curious, ev- they eventually shut the product down. And I think you see this a lot in mm-hmm. Silicon Valley. And you, uh, I think, you know, people are kind of sometimes perplexed as to why did you pay all this money only then to shut it down? <laughs> Isn't there some level yeah. of brand equity or something there? And I'm curious. I'd love to get your mm-hmm. thoughts on all that.
1: Yeah. Well, so, you know, the reason that we sold to Concur was was both. Uh, out of desire and out of fear, you know, the desire was we actually really did view there as being a huge opportunity to build a consumery business travel product. And we thought that small businesses could really benefit from letting their employees search using the hip experience and then book directly with the supplier and have all the information show up in their expense report and get corporate discounts. We thought that that would be an amazing flow, an amazing product, and it was. I mean, I used Convert for a long time, you know, from the beta until it would shut down, because I thought it was great. Um, so that was part of our motivation for selling this. We'd turned down many acquisition offers in the past, and this one felt like a real fit. Like we could do something that neither of us would be able to do on our own, we keep our consumer experience and we build this great business experience and people can use us for voting. And I really loved the team at Concur and our whole team from hitmunk moved over and things went really well as far as, you know, anyone that I know. Uh, this was one of the most successful acquisitions that I've seen for the first couple of years. Um, and so when I left at the end of 2018, I was very optimistic. I thought this thing's is on, on its way to becoming a really, you know, powerful permanent fixture in the world of travel. Um, big companies are really hard to understand, and I still don't know exactly what happened. Um, I do know that Concur, even by even when they acquired us, Concur was a division of an even bigger company, which is SAP. And Um, SAP's decision-making process was one that I never got details on because it was, you know, five layers above me in the organization or something like that. Um, you know, I, I think the, the risks with disruption are that, uh, because they don't fit into an existing business model, they don't always have a lot of people who are cheering for them inside of bigger companies, you know? You hear about entrepreneurs, like people inside big companies, and how hard it is for people inside big companies to really launch disruptive innovation. It's because that's just not the way that big companies typically operate. You know, they don't usually think about how do we take our existing businesses and replace them. They t- typically think about how do we take our existing businesses and extend them, and grow them. And so Bitlink was just kind of a weird outlier within... SAP. I mean, that was apparent to me from the beginning. Yeah. We were not like any other product that SAP sold. They didn't have any other consumer products that were geared towards business of any kind that I know of. And so, in retrospect, again, I was overly optimistic that there would be, you know, a lot of people who saw how great of an opportunity this was and, you know, were excited about it. And whatever it was that happened, it wasn't bad. <clears throat> um. It's interesting what you say about intra- entrepreneurs.
0: I definitely found that we've worked with a lot of companies to help them expand verticals, and they're, they're often um, uh, concerned about cannibalization. And we've noticed like there's yeah, a lot of people sure. on product cannibalization, team cannibalization, any, any yeah. number of stuff can really uh, throw and, a wrench in the works.
1: And again, I don't know that that's what it was. Um, you know, what I do know is that it wasn't something that fit the template for the stuff that SAP does day in and day out.
0: So, well, that
1: surely made a difference at some level.
0: So, I, I want to transition over to what you're doing now. So, you just finished up mm-hmm. uh, as a um, a visiting partner at the uh, at Y Combinator, uh, kind of coming full circle, I guess. So, the beginning of your startup career, and then uh, you're also uh, writing a lot. So, could you you know tell us more about mm-hmm. your your uh, your writing on uh, startups and anxiety?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, you know, after we sold Hitmonk, um I started doing some angel investing and I would share with entrepreneurs, you know, some of the stuff that we went through at FitMonk, you know, the difficulty with airlines, the difficulty with partners. You know, we, you and I didn't even get into it uh, on this conversation, but, you know, difficulty fundraising, um, difficulty with, you know, the broader market, all sorts of unexpected negative surprises. And I started to notice that the stuff that I was talking to them about Often had deep resonance for them in whatever it was that was stressing them out about their startup. Sometimes it was about hiring, sometimes it was about managing a board, sometimes it was about fundraising or dealing with partners or selling or whatever. And I realized that that the experience of Fitlunk was actually a great education in dealing with hard stuff that came out of nowhere. So I started to, to share my stories with founders, and then I started to try to hone in a little bit more on what's the common thread here. Why is it that entrepreneurs seem to find themselves getting more stressed out the more success their company has? It's really not intuitive. You know, when, when it was just Steve and I in a room and we were writing Hitmonk, you know, version one before we launched it, we were mostly excited. We weren't stressed out. But then as soon as we launched it, you know, anytime that the site would go down for a few minutes, we'd be stressed out. Anytime that, you know, uh, it looked like we might not be able to raise money, we got stressed out. Anytime an employee quit, we got stressed out. You know, all of these things, suddenly we had something to lose. You know, as, whereas before we were just kind of playing with house money, now it was a matter of, oh, we've actually got something. And if we don't get this exactly right, it might disappear. And that was the anxiety producing thing. So I've tried to, I've tried to, to, um, explain this first to myself and then to other people, by kind of reasoning about it from first principles. Because it's not obvious to most people why having your company start to get a little bit of traction would actually make you more stressed out rather than less. And I came up with this analogy to algorithms. Basically, there's something going on in our minds. You can think of it as a series of algorithms that helps us make sense of you know, what the future holds. And sometimes those algorithms lead to really good things. They allow us to imagine some, something that the world needs that we can bring into existence. But sometimes that imagination leads to really dark places with people worrying that, you know, that they're not going to be able to measure up and that they're going to, you know, lose their job, that they're going to get fired from the company they started, that they're going to be unable to raise money and the company is going to go out of business or whatever. Right? You can list all the different anxieties that founders have over time. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that the same people who are really good at imagining these things that the world needs are also really good at imagining 10,000 ways that their startup could get crushed and that they could, you know, held, be held responsible for that. Yeah. So, so that was kind of the starting point. And uh, I draw a lot of different parallels to my own experience and also to the way that our immune systems work because as it happens, our immune systems also deal with the possibility of all sorts of different threats that they have to fight off, and so I think there's a lot to learn from both of those things. And when I started sharing it with founders, they found it really helpful. So I started to publish it online.
2: Okay, so uh, two, uh, two two final points from uh, from me then before we before we wrap up, Adam. Would it be fair to say? I mean, just listening to this this interview now for the last 35 40 minutes, and you know what you're doing now with your writing about overcoming anxiety and all these kind of things. Mm-hmm. There is, um, I might be wrong, but or forgive me if I have got it wrong. There does seem to be a, a slightly downbeat tone to it. By which my question is: Did you did you enjoy doing Hip Monk and the startup story? Uh, Do you know what I mean? I mean, forgive me if, for, like I say, yeah, me yeah, if I've got it sure wrong. It does it. So. it does seem kind of like you didn't really have the best time, possibly.
1: No, I didn't. You know, th- here's the truth is that like a lot of experiences of growth, it was very uncomfortable at the time, but I'm also kind of glad that I had the experience. Yeah, It wasn't, it wasn't pure suffering. There were plenty <laughs> of good things that happened, but it was not something where I was excited every day, you know, for, six years to go to work. There were periods like that, but there were even longer periods where I was mostly preoccupied with wondering if we were going to be staying in business or if I'd be keeping my job. And if I'd had better tools for dealing with it, I think I actually would have enjoyed the whole thing more. But I came at it from the standpoint of being very skeptical of people who had advice for dealing with stress or for dealing with you know, work-life balance or things like that. I, I tended to think that all of the advice that those people gave didn't apply to me because they didn't know how difficult it was to be a travel startup,
0: Right. you know, <laughs>
1: their advice was useful to the world, but not to this slice of the world that's the super hard part. And actually, it turns out that I think the advice is the same for everyone, which is, yeah, you know, uncertainty can be a source of stress, but just because you can imagine terrible things that might happen, doesn't mean that you should orient your entire life around these things that are showing up in your head. You actually have to orient to the things that make you happy and the things that increase your odds of success, even though there's always a possibility that it'll end up failing. So I wish I'd learned that lesson then. I've certainly learned that lesson now. And, you know, hopefully I can keep other founders from ending up, you know, during, in these sort of, really miserable period as they're dealing with uncertainty
2: yeah and and just lastly then just a bit more i more for my own sense of curiosity really i mean how would you and I'll, I'll frame it around this kind of question i mean how would you advise a startup that's on the receiving end of dare we say a verbal volley from the ceo of a, a competitor a, in in that you were from uh, a certain mr hafner which is unfortunately i guess has passed into the kind of the, the history of of Hipmunk when he gave you a rather unkind name at a Focusrite conference. That's, it's almost yeah. become part of the story. I mean, how would you advise other founders to kind of cope with that level of um, uh, vitriol, if that's <laughs> the word that we can use?
1: Yeah, look, I, I, when I look back, getting made fun of or mocked by Kayak was one of the best parts of the job. That was not a source of anxiety. Because what <laughs> was he going to do? You know, every time he opened his mouth and talked about hip we got a bunch of new people who'd never heard of us using us. It was great. Yeah. So that was never a source of anxiety. And I mean, maybe for some people it would be. And to them, I'd say, no, 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 you got it backwards. Every time that your competitors talk about you, that increases your profile. That makes you more relevant to investors. That makes you more relevant to people you'd want to hire. It makes you more relevant to the world. Don't stress out about that. Um, the stuff that was the source of anxiety was, uncertainty about things like, can we grow more? Yeah. You know, will we be able to raise money? What's going to happen, you know, when an airline pulls out of the site and we're no longer able to show their results? Are people going to still want to use our site? Mm. Those are the sorts of things that were unpleasant to deal with.
0: Yeah.
2: No, very interesting. Thank you for your Candor on this.
0: Um, Dave, yeah. thank you. Yeah, it sounds like uh the takeaway is any PR is good PR. <laughs> it's yeah, it's stuff. the
2: right, it's the Ryanair model, isn't uh, it? You know, any, any all PR all is all good,
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not any, but most. Um cool. Well um, you know, thanks Adam for your time. Uh, I think that's all we have sure. today. Uh, it was all super insightful. And uh, for our listeners, this has been How I Got Here with Mozio and FocusWire, our podcast about innovation in travel and transportation. And thanks for joining us. We do these once a week. Uh, and all the best. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks for listening to how i got Here podcast we'll be back next week with more insight stories behind startups and innovation in travel and transportation check mozio.com slash move for a complete write-up of the highlights of every podcast with translations into five languages and get your daily dose of news on the digital travel economy by subscribing to the newsletter at focuswire.com see you next week